Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the God of forgiveness and the God that draws people to repentance. Uh, you, you taught uh, young Pastor Timothy to uh, teach with integrity, dignity, and gentleness, uh, for you indeed may grant repentance leading to eternal life. So since it's you who have taught us these things, we ask you now to enable these things in our lives as we have one last uh, conversation about forgiveness and repentance and try and make some sense out of this for situations in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So first of all, can everybody hear me? I can turn up the volume if need be. All right. Seeing no objections, uh, let's come to our, this is is it, I'll never, there's no more. Uh, So, let's say our memory verse together one last time, which I'll I'll just remind you is Ephesians 4.32, that's kind of been my memory verse uh, for this class, because it's about how Christ teaches us to forgive, and uh, the Apostle Paul wrote, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32. So let's say that together. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32. Alright, so today we're going to slightly up our game. So we have been just trying to get the concepts of forgiveness, and repentance, and even talking about what it might look like with my cycle of forgiveness and cycle of repentance. Uh, but today, I want to just, I, I probably put this arrow a little too high, but I want to actually think about a couple of situations, uh, both in scripture and uh, some details changed uh, things that I've uh, dealt with, uh, and talk about what, how we might want to handle those things. And then also, uh, you guys can bring in some examples as well, so we can try and apply this stuff so it's a thing we actually do. Now, before we do that, let's just review uh, sort of the big things we've looked at so far. First of all, uh, the way we defined it, what did we say the Bible says forgiveness is? Siri found that on the web, but I want to know what you found. Uh, what 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 is forgiveness? The way we've been talking about it, forgiveness of a debt, debt cancellation. And what then is repentance? Turning away from turning around, changing one's mind. And so to forgive uh, is to forgive someone that has changed their mind and canceled their debt. Uh, that, that is what, now we've got to be careful about the temporal order because God has done everything necessary to forgive us. And when we put our faith in Jesus, it works repentance in us. So are we forgiven before we repent or after we repent? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, last week we talked about six steps, or last week, two weeks ago, uh, we talked about six steps of repentance. That is, when we are repenting of a specific sin specifically, we begin by simply recognizing that we have a sin and that it is evil. And we acknowledge it to be so. And then, before we go any further, for it to be Christian repentance, we must look at the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us and turn to him. Because while there is a sort of repentance that is not Christian repentance, Christian repentance is specifically turning from whatever idol drives our sin to Jesus Christ as our God to guide us by his word. So Christian repentance is very specifically turning to Jesus, although we can talk of a more generic uh, repentance uh, just relationally. But then, 
uh, you have to actually hate that sin. Uh, one of the most important parts of repentance is seeing that your sin is evil and ought not to have been done and hating that you did it. Actually hating that that is a part of you and wanting to see that die. Or what the Puritans called mortification of sin. So putting sin to death because we hate it. And then we turn from that sin. Right At that point we have changed our mind about that sin. We were committing it and so in some way, some sense, we thought that sin was what was best, what was good. Uh, I think uh, it wasn't Jonathan Edwards, it was someone else, but I, uh, but I always misattribute it to Jonathan Edwards, who said, uh, we always do the thing we most love. All right, uh, um, Thomas Chalmers, the expulsive power of a new affection. Uh, that is, in order to change our actions, we have to change what we love, because the decisions we make are rooted in what we love. So in that sense, we always do what we most want to do, uh, even though we have, you know, Romans 7, which says, Wretched man that I am, the thing that I want to do I cannot do. Who will save me from this darkness? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. There's still another sense in which whatever decision we make is the thing we most wanted to do. And then once we have turned from that to Christ, we have to figure out what it is we ought to be doing anyway. And so we plan for obedience. We study God's word. We get wise counsel. And we figure out what it is we were supposed to be doing in the beginning. And then we actually have to obey. Like actually obeying and walking in obedience is part of repentance. Otherwise it's not repentance. You haven't really changed your mind. Uh, At least not yet. Now... Sorry, got something in my, got a hair or something. Um, So, uh, just like forgiveness is often a cycle that takes time, we said that this, uh, these six steps of repentance also are not a single one-time event, particularly when we are talking about repenting of specific sins specifically. It often takes time for this to work out in our lives. Uh, And so someone can be in the process of repentance, but not fully there yet. And so it's important to give people time, give people grace. That's why uh, Paul said to the leaders at Thessalonica, uh, encourage uh, encourage the uh, faint-hearted, admonish the idle, help the weak, be patient with them all. Uh, Because it takes time for these things to work themselves out. So that was sort of the six steps of repentance that we talked through somewhat two weeks ago. Do we have any... And so that's all review. We we have talked through that. Any questions or thoughts before we do a little bit more more review? Because my last plan just didn't work out the way I thought it would. So any questions or thoughts on that? So then, I, I know none of you can see this, but uh, there is a great book that I absolutely recommend called How People Change. Uh, and basically, uh, Paul Tripp and Tim Lane have gone and they have uh, looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, I think it is, and uh, thought through, actually, the, I match up my six steps of repentance to this. Uh, you know, a thing happens that leads you to sin, and bad fruit, and you have to begin to deal with the loves underneath that, to uh, hate sin, to turn in obedience, to figure out what idols are in your life, and to look at Jesus on the cross and let that begin to change your heart so that you begin to love something different, you begin to plan to walk in obedience by learning his word, and you begin to walk in obedience, which gives you a different kind of fruit when these situations happen. So we also talked through that cycle much uh, slower uh, last week. Any, any going back to any questions or thoughts about that? Um, I know this is a, a lot, but I promise you, 
Uh, first of all, I'm going to send out all my notes because I, I think you guys need access to this stuff. Um, this, if you're trying to work through something, like if you know you've got a sin and you need to work it out in your life, sitting down and journaling through these steps can do wonders because it changes your heart and your mind. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we make as Christians is thinking that repentance is instantaneous or effortless or easy. Repentance is hard. Repentance is difficult. The whole point of sin is we want to do the bad thing and we need to change the very thing we want to do. So repentance takes time and dedication. And and so repentance is something we really do have to take seriously if we are to pursue repentance. And repentance is going to look like, uh, and this comes straight from the domestic abuse and sexual abuse report that our denomination came out with this last year. Uh, And they identified six marks of repentance. First, someone who is repentant takes ownership of their sin without minimization. They say, yes, what I did was evil, period. They don't qualify it. They don't say, yeah, but. They just say, what I did was wrong. And they stop. Then, they are willing to fully accept the consequences of sin. Forgiveness does not mean the absence of consequences. And a truly repentant person might hope for mercy, even ask for mercy, but nonetheless is fully willing to accept the consequences for what they have done. And then, that the person that is truly repentant will patiently endure with the one they have hurt. Now that could mean lots of things. It could mean no contact with the person they've hurt. It could mean lots of contact with the person they hurt. That's really largely up to the person they hurt as to what that involves and other wise and godly counsel. Um, Particularly in the context of domestic abuse and sexual abuse, please don't ever handle those situations on your own. It is dangerous. So do not handle those sorts of things on your own. Uh, Godly repentance will then recognize the difference between being forgiven, being trusted, and or being restored. So once again, there is a there is a ideal goal of full restoration of the relationship when there is forgiveness. That is the ideal goal of forgiveness. But life is complicated, people are sinners, and sometimes that ideal goal will not be recognized until glory, until heaven at least. Right? Sometimes in this life there simply cannot be full restoration for all manner of reasons. Now sometimes there is. I've seen it happen. But I've seen it far more often that while forgiveness is happening and even repentance is happening, full reconciliation is simply not possible. This is actually something the Apostle Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 7 around marriage. Basically, there are marriages that are just irreconcilable, in which case he says divorce is actually permitted. Uh, right, So uh, there are just, the ideal goal of forgiveness is full restoration, full, the relationship being what it always should have been. And sometimes that happens by God's grace, but sometimes even where there's real forgiveness and real repentance, that is not able to happen in this life. So um, one of the hardest things we do as Christians is we always remember the ideal while staying aware that we live in a sinful, fallen world. So we always remember the ideal, 
and even work towards it while still recognizing that the ideal is not always possible in this life. Um, Christians who insist on the ideal in this life create lots of pain for lots of people. And then finally, uh, I did not correct this from last week. If you can't tell, I copied and pasted the slide. It should say five marks of repentance, not six. Uh, But uh, the fifth mark of repentance is a commitment to stop the abuse or any other sin uh, and recognize the damage it has caused for the person they sinned against. Right? So it is just sheer recognition of what has happened. Right? And so... The repentant person is not going to be expecting reward with the victim's forgiveness. They're not even going to expect trust or reconciliation, even if they hope for it. But rather, they will be godly and not expect reward for it. And they will make a full confession of sin, including specificity regarding the abuse, along with accountability. So a third part, especially where domestic abuse and sexual abuse is concerned, but in a lot of sin, you you really need a third party to get involved because the problem is is the person that got sinned against is also a sinner responding sinfully to how they were sinned against, and it just gets messy. That's that's just wisdom, right? There's wisdom in a uh, a bunch of counselors to hickify the proverbs. Um, so any any thoughts or questions on the Five marks of repentance. Yeah, the walk has to match the, the talk, Hal said. And that, that's right. If, if someone is not, act, if they're only saying the words of repentance and not fulfilling the actions of forgiveness with some level of consistency, right? there cannot be reconciliation in those situations. It's just not possible. And in the Again, in these extreme cases, it's not safe. Uh, and so, again, there's a lot of wisdom. The, the real problem is, is I'm trying to lay down some principles that, like, apply to the gentlest, sort of lowest level, unheinous sin. All sin is damnable in the sight of God. I know the confession. But, you know, like the least unheinous sin to the most heinous sin. Uh, but when you're laying down principles that are meant to apply on that broad a spectrum there's a lot of layers I could unpack and I'm supposed to finish the class today. So, <laughs> uh, Alright. We talked about some examples of repentance. We looked at Exodus. They turned. God relented. We looked at David. He turned. God still killed his child and he accepted that as a consequence. He didn't even complain about it. He asked God to stay his hand And God didn't. And David said, glory be to God, and walked away. We looked at Zacchaeus and the restitution, right? Uh, He he took the principles of Leviticus and multiplied them. I'm going to pay back what I took fourfold, and I'm going to give to the poor all that I have. Uh, And then we are still today going to look at 2 Corinthians 7. Uh, So, uh, again, we're still doing a whole bunch of review, but slightly slower. But so restitution is a part of repentance. Uh, It's in both the Old Testament and the New. And that is this idea that if you sin, if you have the ability to in some way make things right, you're not paying back for your sin. You can't do that. Sin is too, even the smallest sin is too heinous for us to pay it back. It separates us from God for eternity. Nonetheless, 
when it comes to horizontal human relationships, if you have some ability to make right what you made wrong, you should joyfully do so as a part of your repentance. It, it's and I, right, that's not a should. This is part of repentance. That's a should. That's literally a sign you're repentant. Do you see the distinction I just made? One is you should do this. That's repenting, and the other one is you should do this. That's a sign you're repentant. Same same actions, very different motive. You, you guys picking up what I'm laying down? All right. Uh, and then this is where I took off, and so I'm going to slow down a bunch, especially because I, I was going to cut these out, but I think they're so important. I had to put them in today because we stink at apologizing. So I have no less than two different versions of how to make a confession and apology. First, when you are confessing your sins, address everyone involved. You need to go talk to everyone you hurt insofar as it is possible. And you need to avoid if, but, and maybe. You know, I committed this sin, but John was a jerk. No. That's not an apology. I committed a sin, I did a bad thing, period. End of sentence, no qualifier. I did this thing, but if, no. That is not an apology. Unacceptable. Admit specifically both actions and attitudes. I did this wrong thing, and I did it because this evil thing is in my heart. This is how I felt. This is how I thought about it, and that too was wrong. Every action has a heart underneath. And you are not truly mortifying sin and moving towards full repentance that will work itself out in your life if you stop at repenting of merely your actions. We have to repent of our very thoughts and desires in order to be fully repentant. Acknowledge the hurt. So just as we said in forgiveness, you've got to acknowledge the way you've been hurt and take account, so the person apologizing should do likewise. This is how I hurt you. And that, that is a price that I, I wish I could make that pain go away. In fact, maybe even ask, is there anything you would like to see me do as a part of, so that you would feel I am truly repentant? Now, could that then get unreasonable? Sure. Yes, things could get out of hand, but that is a good and right question to ask. Is there anything you would like to see me do that would make you say, I'm repentant of the way I sinned against you? Accept the consequences. It is okay to ask for mercy, but if you are not granted mercy, you accept it with godly humility. Because you do not control the consequences if you're the sinner. You do not control the consequences if you're the sinner. Alter your behavior. Actually change stuff. And and we've already said to to repent may start with behavior, but it's got to go to the heart. And then you actually have to ask for forgiveness. That is a real step in reconciliation you actually have to say i did this this was wrong it hurt you this way i had these attitudes underneath what i was doing that was evil and wrong there's no excuse for it i accept whatever consequence you put on me will you forgive me now i said this last week or two weeks ago i'll say it again not everyone is on the same level of maturity not everyone has taken my brilliant class okay And so, I can think of, no offense, okay, but I have older people in mind 
that haven't necessarily learned how to ask for forgiveness, but, you know, they've kind of gone, you know, it's all right. And is that the most mature language to use? No. But sometimes, you know, they're sort of, that they're moving in the right direction. So if it doesn't exactly follow the script, use wisdom, discern. If the heart's, you know, kind of going in the right place, but they didn't follow the script exactly, that, that happens, right? Should they follow the script because that's the most mature and godly way to do it, and I'm the genius that came up with it? Absolutely. But we have to have wisdom and grace for others, okay? But still, this, uh, you know, even if there's some alterations of words because of maturity, I'd say these seven A's are principles. They exist in some manner in all true confession of sin. Any thoughts or questions there? Right. Yes. Uh, yeah, so I, I would basically use the same principle the apostles used in the book of Acts. Uh, we follow the commands of God rather than the commands of men. If we ask, what would I need to do to make this right? And they ask you to sin, which suicide would be a sin, then obviously you cannot follow through with that. Now, could it be turn yourself into the state for the crime you committed and you might get the death penalty? Yes, but God has given the state the right to do that. So that's a whole different can of worms and complicated and a conversation because there's all sorts of reasons to have complicated conversations about that that I'm not going to do right now. Um, does, that, does that help? Right. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, there's probably a Bible verse for this, but I don't know what it is. But the old adage, you can't control another person, uh, rings true. You do what is right, and if they are then demanding something that is truly unreasonable as a consequence, then... And this is, where, this is why third parties are important, right? Because... None of us think our sin was quite as bad as it is, but if a third party comes in that is truly wise and says, yeah, that it's unreasonable for them to think that that's what you ought to do as restitution, but, you know, you could do this, and if that's not good enough for them, now they're the ones. It is possible for the one who needs to forgive to wind up being the one sinning. Uh, that, life's complicated that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know that I'd w- walk away. I would seek wisdom and not do anything unreasonable. R- right. So, I mean, if, they, if they've berated you and they're not looking to forgive you, you can't force someone to forgive you. Um, at that point they truly are in sin but one of the consequences you may have to face until they you know you can pray for them to forgive you you can pray for God to work on their heart but one of the consequences may be you now have to wait for them to get to a point of maturity where they can forgive if, if, I, if I got to walk away from every time I've hurt someone I wouldn't be anywhere <laughs> um Caitlin? Hurt people hurt people. 
So let's do this again. How to apologize. Express sorrow. Say you're sorry. I'm sorry I did this. And own your guilt. I'm sorry I did this. That was wrong. God's word says it wrong says it's wrong. It's against the law. It's obviously wrong. Whatever. You say it's wrong and define why it's wrong. And name the wrong you did. I did this thing. And I am sorry it was wrong. And I hurt you when I did this. This is what it did to you. This is what it took away from you. No ifs. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. First of all, there actually is a place to say I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. But now, we got to be careful with that because a lot of people, that is like one of the most abused phrases in the world because it's how people don't apologize. They don't really think they did anything wrong. But politicians do it all the time, yeah. So, yeah, uh, I'm sorry I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings is not an apology. Now, there are times, if you don't think you sinned, and you, it is legit, like, don't lie. I'm sorry that hurt your feelings. It was right because God's word says da-da-da-da-da. Now, don't be a jerk about it, or then you're sinning. Um, but... <laughs> In general, no ifs. If you really did sin, no, I was wrong, I did this, it hurt you, but... No, 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 stop, right, stop. No ifs, no sorry if eyes. Don't blame, shift, or defend yourself. Don't say, I did this, but you... It actually may be true that they did, okay? The but you might be true, but... Now is not the time to deal with their sin. You're apologizing right now. You got to like give give it 24 hours, okay? I, I don't know. Give it something. If you're apologizing, apologize for what you did, not confront them about what they did, or you're making it about them instead of about. This is the one time it's when you're making yourself the bad guy. It's okay to make it all about you, okay? No passive voice. I'm sorry you were offended. No, I did this. This hurt you. It should have offended you. It was wrong because. And then make amends. Ask, what can I do? All right, so same model, just explained a different way. Um, I'm pretty sure I stole this from Ken Sandy and John Piper, but I can't actually figure out where I stole it from, so I'm going to take credit for it. So there. Okay, I stole it from somewhere, but you don't know where, so <laughs> just so you know. Um, it, it, all right, so any, any other thoughts about how to apologize, how to confess before we move ever onwards? Okay. You have until this changes to make a statement. All right, so when? When do we forgive? Well, where we talked about Luke 17, verse 3, where Jesus is very clear in the way he lays it out that repentance and forgiveness go together. And this is actually in relation, right? This is in human relationships. So when, when do we forgive? When someone is repentant. And I told you I didn't like that. I don't know if you remember six weeks or two months ago, I said that Pastor Mike and I were talking through this, and I didn't like that. I was bugged by that, by the way he was putting that, and I wasn't sure I agreed with it. So we've talked about it a bunch more, and we've both recanted of our positions. So neither of us was right. (laughs) And so I'm going to tell you what I think we've come to as the biblical thing we're still wrestling through. Uh, But... Uh, we have to answer some of the questions. When do we reconcile? So when do we forgive and when do we reconcile? Well, in general, relationally speaking, you can complete the forgiveness cycle not only through yourself, but when it comes back around and and, uh, you forgiving someone else and they have repented. So I don't know if you remember the last step of the... 
I'm sure you all remember my profound forgiveness cycle, right? I, exactly. Of course you do. Well, the last step of the forgiveness cycle is insofar as it depends on you, seek to live peaceably with all, Romans 12, right? So you seek reconciliation insofar as it depends on you, meaning you control you, but the other person has actually got to get involved in repenting in order for there to be actual reconciliation in the relationship. So you can actually go through the steps of forgiveness without arriving at the ideal, remember? So this is where the already not yet happens. Already not yet is how uh, reformed theological people talk about the fact that like Jesus has already completed the work in us. I'm going to talk about this today in the sermon. But also, it's not yet done. We are totally forgiven of sin. Sin has been taken away from us. But we are simul justus et peccator, simultaneously righteous yet sinners. There is still sin at work in our lives. The sin is not gone yet. So same deal. You can start working your way through forgiveness. You can start working your way through a lot of those emotional steps, but not actually arrive at reconciliation or trust or any of those things because they're not repentant. So we should always be seeking to move toward a place where we can offer forgiveness. We should always be seeking to move toward a place where we can offer forgiveness, but forgiveness isn't complete until the loop is complete. That is, they have repented and apologized. And again, life is messy. Sometimes they don't follow the exact steps. They don't say the exact right things. But you can use wisdom and realize someone's headed in that direction and still go that way, okay? So if they seem to be, in general, repentant, there you go. Sometimes they're not headed in that direction, in which case there can be no reconciliation or completion of forgiveness. So, I cracked the code. And that is, we forgive those who repent, though there may still be consequences, and we forbear with those who do not repent. That's my category I came up with. There we go. So I found a happy medium. It, forbearing still involves a lot of the steps of forgiveness, but it is not complete because the person you're forgiving is not actually repentant. So Romans 12 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And Jesus himself said, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, a lot of people have read that and then immediately gone, so I have to be a doormat? How does that that work? Now, there's a couple of things you've got to keep in mind in the Sermon on the Mount. One, Jesus is talking in, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is that he is laying out the ideal. And later, he will, like in Luke, like uh, Luke 22, he actually tells the apostles, hey, as you get ready to go out, take some money and go buy some swords. Okay? So obviously, 
we assume Jesus doesn't contradict himself, there is some way in which you can turn the other cheek and still have a sword on your belt ready to rock and roll. So we have to work out what that means with wisdom. And I think Romans 12 helps us figure that out. And that is, we're not revisiting evil on people. And insofar as we can bear it, right, we are not retaliating. And we're seeking to bring someone to repentance. Nonetheless, if they are truly doing something that is going to destroy us, truly harm us, then that is a whole different thing than what Jesus is talking about in that context. So context uh, matters. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. That's what Paul was saying. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust, right? So that's more of that context. He's laying it out there. God sends good on all sorts of people, and you have to interact with all these different people. And so you've got to figure out, okay, what can I bear? What is harmful? Uh, and those are sometimes wisdom issues. Um, I, I, I have a friend who was preaching on this passage in Matthew 5 one time and he pointed out if Phil were to come up and strike me on this cheek and I turned around and showed him the other cheek he'd back off like if if you hit someone and they don't fall down but they turn around to you and show you the other cheek you don't then punch the other cheek you run away because you're about to get a bad thing happened to you. (laughs) You like how I shifted there at the end? Uh, (laughs) So, uh, yeah. The point is, we forgive those who repent, although there may still be consequences, but we forbear with those who do not repent. Meaning, we don't seek revenge personally, although we may take appropriate steps to do something to bring about justice, like going to the civil magistrate, if it's a crime, Romans 13, or going to the church, uh, Matthew 18, and the steps there as we confront a brother we see sinning. Sometimes we flee, right? That's what David did in 1 Samuel 19. The people were coming after him, and he ran away. In fact, he did that a lot. And God said that's what he was supposed to do. And sometimes, yes, we will respond in self-defense, Jesus told them to go get some swords, so apparently that can be a thing you have to do. When, when Jesus was talking about turning the other cheek, I don't think he had people mugging you in mind. I think he had something far more relational, someone you know uh, in mind. Does that make sense? All right. There may be consequences even for those who are forgiven. In Hebrews 12, The writer of the Hebrews says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. By the way, that's just quoting Proverbs 3. You know that, right? If you didn't, now you know. Um, It is for discipline that you have to endure. In other words, there are consequences for the sins you've done, even though you're a child of God, even though you're a forgiven sinner. Still consequences. Uh, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, 
but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And then, uh, so that's talking about the relationship of God with his children. Paul, then in Galatians, talks about the relationship between believers. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh. Uh, will from the flesh reap corruption. Uh, that is, if they're committing sins, bad stuff's going to happen, basically. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Notice he doesn't say health, wealth, or anything to that effect. He goes straight for heaven. Uh, and, and we Christians have got to keep heaven in our minds. Um, there, there's two errors we make as Christians. We either become so heavenly minded we're no earthly good. And I do think that happens. Uh, but we can also become so earthly minded we're no heavenly good. Neither one is where God wants us to be. So let us not grow weary of doing good For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So that's just a really long way to say there can be consequences. I already said David's son dies. We have to use wisdom in all these things. And that's really what this comes down to. So many of the hard cases are wisdom issues that all these principles just don't always fit neatly the way we want them to. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Very next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, which is it, Bible? See, the Bible can't, the Bible can't be infallible. It contradicts itself. No. The Bible expects us to know how to read and use reason and wisdom and figure out which is the right thing to do at the right time. And that's, that's where that many counselors is helpful. Proverbs 6. Can a man carry fire to his chest uh, and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? In other words, use some common sense. There's some stuff you know what's going to happen if you do it. And then there's all this other stuff you got to go figure out. So just think it through. And the way that applies to restoring relationships, forgiveness, repentance, is that figuring out the proper level of restored trust and relationship is complicated and doesn't have a magic Bible verse, but you can ask questions like, how likely am I to experience more harm if I restore them to trust at this point based on the repentance they see and the accountability that is in place? Um, How likely are they to sin again? Well, okay, Jesus said, if your brother comes to you seven times in a day saying, I repent, forgive him. Yeah, that's fine. Do forgive him, but maybe stop lending him your stuff. I realize he didn't say that in the verse, but he did not say it. And there's plenty of other Bible verses that would seem to make that an okay application. This, This is why... People who only quote one verse without the rest of the Bible are dangerous. Um, Often a consequence for the unrepentant that is doing significant harm is going to be some form of cutting off. This happens in the Bible, right? In 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, Paul says, hey, if they're just going to keep on doing this, get rid of them. Tell them to leave. Take a hike. And then, of course, there's sort of the infamous uh, dude that was sleeping with his mother-in-law in 1 Corinthians. And he said, kick him out of the church. Treat him like an unbeliever. Turn him over to Satan that he may be saved. Kick him out of the church because if he's a believer, that will drive him to repent. And then, lo and behold, he did repent and they didn't let him. And, you know, assumably he was truly repentant and all these qualifications were in place because 
Paul had to say, hey, y'all, he repented. Let him back in. So that, that happens too, right? We make mistakes and don't let people back in that we should. Sorry, church is messy. Pastors and elders don't always make the right decisions. By the way, if you thought uh, the, the... I'm not on the session, but if you think me or the session um, like are perfect in our decisions... Wow, have we got you fooled. Trust me, we've hurt people because we made mistakes. Uh, yeah. So, there's some examples of complicated things. We have eight minutes for this. Who wants to just talk about something rather than me bringing in my examples? Yeah, generify the thing you want to talk about, and let's talk about it. Otherwise, I can use mine. All right. Any any questions or thoughts about the stuff I've gone over? I know, like, it's just drinking from a fire hose, but like, this should be a book. <laughs> I'll ask Pastor Mike to write that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so in the forgiveness cycle, in step five, we talk about how as you, uh, you know, are, are seeing Jesus as your own Savior and your sin being on him, you are enabled to roll other sins against you onto Jesus as well. So that's kind of what you're saying. In fact, I think I use that same rolling uh, uh, language. I like, uh, and uh, part of what we, part of the distinction that, I, I sort of landed on here but between forgiveness and forbearance is 
If you get to the point where it's rolling off you onto Jesus, but that person is not repentant, you're, you, may be, you have a disposition of forgiveness, and so you are forbearing, but the relationship is not restored. And remember we said the, the ultimate aim, the, the glory of total forgiveness includes restoration of relationship. And if they're unrepentant, that means you're still having to enact certain consequences uh, and their, the relationship really isn't fully restored. Right. And so that, that's why I... So remember I said it bothered me that Mike... Right, Mike said, no, it's just this hard line, you can't forgive unless there's repentance. I said, no, that doesn't sound good to me. But his argument also made sense. So I, I looked and looked and read and prayed and finally came up with this other category that I found a scripture for. It was on my slideshow, but I don't remember what it was. But you know, I, I forbear as sort of that middle place where you, you're not quite to reconciliation yet but you are acting as someone with a disposition of forgiveness. Romans 12. Yeah, so... If the, so if the person has died, there's two possibilities. Uh, one, they are a Christian, and you know that the minute you see them in heaven, they're going to be sinless, and they're going to ask for forgiveness. You will be fully reconciled. And so there's a sense in which you can, right, because you don't literally have to deal with the relationship, you can begin, begin, not finish necessarily, the emotional process of saying, you know what, I think they are Christians, they're in heaven now, they know what they do is wrong, they are fully repentant now because they're with Jesus, and so I can begin to emotionally offload what happened. The other one, they're still around, but they've cut you off, and they're unrepentant. At, at that point, you have the disposition to forgive them should they try and uh, come to reconcile with you and you, uh, you know, as, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But if they're pushing you away and you pursuing them is just creating problems, some days you just got to let them go. All right, here, here's the one minute. Abused wife, 1 Corinthians 7 and the Westminster Standards say that there's uh, things that break the marriage covenant, you can get divorced. Uh, the gambler, uh, if someone's basically spending bunches of money uh, and they keep asking you for stuff, you can start setting up boundaries so they can't get your money anymore. And if they continue to be unrepentant, you set up more boundaries. And if that begins to hurt the relationship, that's their problem, not yours. The friend who borrows stuff, if they don't give it back, don't give it to them anymore. That's a consequence. The adult daughter with emotionally abusive parents, that's a complicated one because the fifth commandment still applies. You have to honor your father and mother, but you can nonetheless make real, godly, kind identifications. You're sinning against me, and I will enact reasonable consequences well, then you're not honoring me. No, I am honoring you because I love you enough to call you to repentance in the name of Jesus Christ. And then there was this whole thing on 2 Corinthians 7 that'll be in the notes. I'll email out to you guys. Basically, it's just a diagnostic, right? It's a bunch of questions uh, straight out of that uh, domestic, abuse, uh, domestic abuse report. So it's not like I wrote it. You can get it. Uh, but I think they're great things to really figure out, is someone repentant? So are we ready to move forward with reconciliation? Uh, there we go. I'm, I'm out of time. Let me pray for us, and let's go worship the Lord together. Uh, Father, thank you for this time we've had to talk about reconciliation and forgiveness. Uh, I, Holy Spirit, please use it. Please let this work not be in vain. May lives be healed uh, for having thought about this stuff. But even that, it doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on us. You have to be at work. Lord, if Holy Spirit, if you're not at work, 
all is in vain. So I please ask you to root these things deep in our hearts and let our relationships and even our church and our families be transformed by forgiveness and repentance. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.